Good to, be, good to be with you this morning. Everybody hearing me okay? Yes? Okay, good. Well, it's uh, great to be with many of you old-timers in uh, my mind, my old crew from uh, Crossing, or Crossings, depending on how you prefer to call it. But uh, no, it's great to be with you guys. And new faces, too. Nice to meet you guys. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm Colin Mattoon. Uh, just a little bit about me. You'll, you can see a picture up here. This is my wife, Marianne. Married for a little over 10 years. She's up here too. And uh, that's our little guy, Davis. He's, uh, he's uh, just about to be two. And uh, he's the cutest. He likes pointing at things. If you disagree that he's the cutest, I'll just punch you in the face. But uh, uh, some people may have doubted that he might actually be my child. I was a little unsure at first when he came out because he had red hair. And I'm like, what's been going on? He's obviously my child. I'm the one on the right. So we kind of look the same, right? No, he's the best. I love being a dad. It's great. And um, I love being able to be a pastor. Uh, I love being able to uh, pastor my church. It's in Kent, Ohio. Kent State University is there. There's about 20,000 students there, and there's maybe 1,000 Christians on campus. Uh, It's a very unreached uh, campus, unreached area. Um, And so it's a great place to be able to be and be able to serve the Lord. And uh, I want to start off our time together today just by asking you a question, and that is, what does God want from his church? I don't know how often we stop and think about that, but what does God really want from his church? What does he want from his church and its members? What's the goal that we are to be pursuing? That's an important question for us to think about. It's an important question for us to meditate on regularly. And so today we're going to talk about this question. Uh, We're going to talk about the goal that we are to pursue as individual Christians and as a church together. Uh, This is true for my church, your church, every church. What does God want from us? I want to remind us of where we want to be going, what we want to be striving for, what our mission is as a church, as churches individually and as a whole church together, as a universal church. And it's important that we remind ourselves of that regularly because uh, if we don't, we begin to drift Right? We begin to experience what the military calls mission creep. And so it's where our mission, our purpose, our goal slowly begins to change over time. And we begin to pursue something else without even realizing it. It's where the original mission and purpose gets lost and we lose sight of what we're supposed to accomplish and be working for every day. And often that doesn't happen through one big decision. It happens through a thousand small decisions that get made. And then slowly without realizing it, we we end up pursuing a different goal than we should be pursuing. Now, that same problem, mission creep, exists in the church too, right? I mean, we all know that. We've seen that in churches we've been in. We've seen that in other churches as well. But today, I want to remind us of the mission that Jesus has given to us. I want to remind us of that and be able to look at it together and get excited about it. So I want to show you the goal, the mission, and the purpose that each Christian in the whole church should be pursuing according to Jesus. So we're going to look at three points today. We're going to look at the identity of Jesus, we're going to look at the command of Jesus, and we're going to look at the encouragement of Jesus in your handy listening guide there that Todd has printed out for you. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in here. Lord God, we thank you for the great privilege that it is to uh, be your people. We're thankful that we are not just individual Christians who have been saved, but we are a family. We are a spiritual family, and we are a body of believers. And so as we focus on your word today, we need to hear from you. We don't want to just play church together. We don't just want to go through the motions. We want to meet with you, and we want to be changed by you. 
We want to know the joy of hearing from you and becoming more like you. And so, God, we pray that you would come and fill me now with the Holy Spirit, that you would give me the words to speak that you want us to hear. We pray that you would work through me, and that you would work in all of us, that we would understand your word, and that we would be transformed by it to become more like Christ. That is our hope for today. We thank you and we praise you for how you are at work, uh, how you've been at work this week, and how you will be at work today. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you can open your Bibles to Matthew 28 if you want, or you can look up here on the screen. We are in Matthew 28, and if you're new to church, Matthew uh, is a book, it's the first book in the New Testament, and uh, Matthew is um, uh, the story of Jesus, right? You guys have been going through it for a little while here, you know uh, what it's about. You've been seeing it already, Uh, but I just want to camp out today at the end, so spoiler alert. We're going to see how it ends here. But uh, Matthew 28 says this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's just start with some context here. Uh, We need to know where this happens in the bigger storyline of Matthew, right? We always want to know where a passage that we look at happens in the bigger story. So the book of Matthew is the story of Jesus, the Messiah. It's about God himself who came to save people from the penalty of their sins. And right before our passage we saw that Jesus chooses to take the wrath of God, God's fully unrestrained anger on himself. Jesus takes God's wrath on himself and takes the punishment for the sins of all humanity. He was arrested, he was beaten, he was given a crown of thorns, he was mocked and spit on, he was whipped with a whip that was made with ends of metal and bone that tore his body apart and would often kill people just from that experience. After that, he survived, he was stripped naked, he was humiliated and crucified, and he died. Jesus was taken down from the cross, he was buried in a tomb that was sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers, and then we know what happened, right? Jesus rose from the grave, he emerged from the tomb as the one who has conquered death. He conquered death, he rose to new life, and he walked around and was seen by hundreds of people as a historical fact. After Jesus rose from the grave, he started to appear to some of his followers first, and he told them to come and meet him in Galilee at this place where we're reading about. So that brings us to our passage. So Jesus, he's finally addressing his followers who have gathered together again to see this Jesus who has emerged from the tomb and risen from the grave. And we see in verse 16, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. This is where they're all going to meet up. And when they get there, they see him and they worship him. But some doubt. Some have doubts. Now these are the 11 disciples, right? They're the people who are closest to Jesus. They lived every day with him for three years. They're like family. And when they get there, they see Jesus, who they know died on the cross, and he has risen from the grave. And when they see him there after these three days, how do they respond? They respond with worship. This brings us to point one. Point one, the identity of Jesus. 
Jesus is God. He's rose from the grave. He's conquered death. He has supreme authority over all things, so he deserves to be worshipped. I know that's a long point. I'll leave it up there so you can write it down. But this is the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the victorious God. He has risen from the grave. He has conquered death. He has supreme authority over all things, including death, so he deserves to be worshipped. Now, the disciples understand the only way to respond to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done here is to worship him. The disciples show us that when you understand the identity of Jesus and the work of Jesus, we must respond with worship. Now, the good thing for us is Jesus didn't just appear. He speaks. He teaches. That's what we see in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't start our passage by telling the disciples what they should do and giving marching orders. That's not how he starts. What does he do first? He tells them who he is. He tells them he is the king. He tells them he has all authority. He has all authority. And he has all authority because of the gospel. Jesus came as God and he became a man. And he lived the perfect life that we could not. He lived a perfectly righteous and obedient life that pleased God in every way. He died on the cross to take the penalty that we deserved for our sins so that we could be forgiven. He died on that cross and was buried in that tomb. And he rose to new life so that we could rise to new life. So that we could be forgiven. And that's why Jesus calls all of us today to repent of our sins, to turn away from the life that is for the kingdom of me and to live for the kingdom of him. He calls us to repent. He calls us to trust in him for forgiveness and to follow him. And when we do that, we are forgiven. We are given new life. We get the Holy Spirit. We become a child of God. We get the great gift of the gospel. Amen? I like some feedback. You can give me some amens here. That's the good news of the gospel. And it's because of this gospel that Jesus can come and say, I have all authority. Because he is the victorious king. He is not the king of any geographic location. He is the king of all geographic locations. He's not the king over some people. He is the king of all people, including us. Amen. Jesus has all authority, so he has absolute and supreme power and authority over all things. And notice the extent of his power here. Right? His might, his rule, it cannot be overcome, it cannot be challenged. Nothing can resist him. Nothing can oppose him or defeat him. Notice the source of his power here. Where does it come from? It's been given to him by God the Father which means it is supreme authority. It is supreme power. There's nothing that is greater. It is the power of God himself. And notice the scope of this power, of this authority. He has authority over everything in heaven and on earth. Over everything. Jesus has this supreme authority and power over all things. His rule is complete. It's not partial. It extends over all people, places, powers, everything you can imagine, every system on earth, everything here on earth and in heaven. And that includes this church. Jesus has all authority over this church and over you. 
He has authority over everything that happens here. He has authority over everything in Crestwood, in Louisville, and in the house that you live in. Why does Jesus talk about his authority here? Why is that where he starts? Why does he talk about his power and rule? Just a megomaniac? No. Jesus wants us to think about his identity as king and as the authority for a reason. For a couple of reasons. One of those reasons is that he wants us to know his commands are non-negotiable. They're non-negotiable. When we repent, Jesus becomes the boss. Jesus is the supreme authority. He's the one who gets to give the orders, who gets to issue the commands, who gets to tell us what to do. God is God and we are not. And so if we don't obey his commands, what is that? That's sin. And we need to repent of that. When he gives the orders, we are to follow because he is king and we are his subjects. And that's why Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, another spoiler alert, if anyone, he says it up here, you got it? I'll just read it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Most of you know that passage. Right? This means the most important thing in your life is not your dreams and your fulfillment and your happiness and your agenda. The most important thing is his plan and his agenda and his desires for you as individuals and for you as a church. The thing God cares most about is not our plans, it's his glory. And friends, you know that is an intellectual fact, but you know how easy it is to lose sight of that in day-to-day living, right? Or is that just me? We love Jesus, but it so easily becomes about us every day and what we think and what we feel and what we want. And so we have to remember, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. It's about him and his plan. The most important thing in your life is bringing God glory in everything you do. Your life's not about you. My life's not about me. So we need to obey him so that we can show his greatness, his glory to the world. And so, friend, I I want you to hear here. If you are seeking to follow Jesus as Lord and you are living for his glory, he is pleased with you. You are doing what he has called you to do, and you should know that God the Father is looking on you with pleasure and delight. We are all fallen sinners. We all struggle. But if you are seeking to live this way, God is pleased. That should give you joy. Now, Jesus also tells us about his authority here because he wants us to know something that's extremely important. He wants us to know that no one and nothing can stand against him and his agenda. Jesus is about to give us this command, this commission, this agenda and mission for the church and for every Christian in it. And before he gives this command, he wants to assure his followers that no one can stand against him. He wants us to know he's the one who has all authority. He has all power, which means nobody's going to be able to stop or oppose his work and his mission. Those who try to oppose Jesus, they're going to be defeated because he's the king who has all authority. They're going to lose every time, just like a two-year-old trying to fist fight with a grown adult. You know, when Davis wants to try and hit, all I have to do is just go like this on his head, and he can swing all he wants, but we know who's going to win. 
And the same thing is true with our God. God's plan will be accomplished for me, for you, for my church, for your church. Because it's not our church, it's his church. When you pursue Jesus' mission, nothing can stand against your success. When you face opposition, when you face persecution in life, God will triumph and you will be victorious because he is the king who has all authority. In the end, we will succeed in the mission that we are pursuing because it is his mission for us. It's guaranteed that we will succeed because he is the one who has all authority. And so as we pursue this mission, we need to remember that because there are times, you know what I know, that it feels like, We don't know what's going on. There are times where it feels like there is no fruit. There are times where it feels like we are spinning our wheels and why are we even trying? But the battle is already won. And our king is the victorious king who will see everything that he wants to have happen accomplished. Because he has all power and authority. And we need to know that as we look here at point two. We need to remember this command, but we need to remember the authority piece first. So let's look at point two, the command of Jesus. Jesus commands his followers to make disciples by evangelizing, baptizing, and teaching people to obey all of God's commands. We see that from verse 19, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now in these verses, Jesus tells us very plainly what our mission is as Christians and as the church. We are to make disciples. That is our job description. That is the objective that Jesus wants his church to pursue. That's the objective, the mission, the goal that Jesus wants all of his followers to devote their lives to accomplishing for his glory. That's what he wants you to do, me to do. It's what he wants every church to do. Now, we do need to be clear, right? I don't want to assume we all understand. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does disciple mean anyway? That's not a common word in our society. That's a Bible word. And we need to explain our terms. So to be a disciple means very simply, you are a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, that we're followers of Jesus. So a disciple is somebody who believes the gospel, and they've been transformed. So now they love and want to follow Jesus. It means you're somebody who's submitted to follow Jesus as Lord of your life. You're seeking to follow and obey him. That's true for you if you are calling yourself a Christian today. That is what a Christian is. You're somebody who's chosen to repent of your sin, to trust in Jesus and follow him by obeying and worshiping him in everything you do. That's what it means to be a disciple. You're somebody who is submitted to follow Jesus. And Jesus commands his church to make disciples. Now, when we look at this in the English, it can be confusing, right? You could say, well, that's only one command. I see like three or four of them here. Well, this is a passage where understanding grammar helps us a lot. I'm not a grammar nerd, like, I didn't even learn parts of speech till I took Greek, because they didn't want to teach them when I was in school, apparently. I, I don't like grammar, and most of us don't, but it's important, because in English, it looks like there's multiple commands. The truth is, there is one command, and one command only in this passage, and that is to make disciples. That's what we call the imperative verb. But there's also three participles, and I'm, I'm not going to teach you grammar, but I am going to say... That's a part of speech that tells you how the command gets carried out. 
right? So this command is make disciples, and the way we make disciples is by doing three things. We go, we baptize, and we teach people to obey all of God's commands. So let's think about each of these. First of all, we make disciples by going. We make disciples by going. We are to go and share the gospel with people who haven't believed it yet. That's the first step in making disciples. We have to go and share the gospel with people who don't know it and don't believe it. A person's got to hear the gospel before they can become a follower of Jesus. And I know that's challenging to many of us, right? It's challenging because, man, it's so much easier to just wait here and wait for people to come to the church. It's so easy to just want to wait for people to come to us to have spiritual conversations. But that's not what God's calling us to. We're to make disciples by going. We are the ones to take the initiative and to go to the lost, not wait for them to come to us. We aren't supposed to sit around in the church or in our small groups or anything else. We are to go. We take the first step. And God is calling you in this passage to be a missionary wherever he places you. We think of missions and missionaries as the people who go you know, across the world, across oceans, The truth is, we are all missionaries, and we are all called to go across the street, across the office, across the city. And God places us where he wants us to be so that we would live on mission, that we would be his missionaries here in Crestwood, in Louisville, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. So Christians, we need to be devoting ourselves to living on mission to pursuing friendships with non-Christians, and then to share the gospel with them. And I know, sometimes that's scary, sometimes that's uncomfortable, sometimes it's just inconvenient, because we're busy, right? All of us are busy. We've got other things that we want to do, and Netflix is always calling. And so for those of us who aren't gifted in evangelism, sometimes it feels like a chore, and I get that. I feel that way sometimes. Listen, if you struggle with that, if you struggle with either fear about evangelism or anxiety or just feeling like you don't know what to say or even that you don't want to, right? talk to your pastors, talk to your community group about that. You're in it together. And it's our job to help one another to be able to grow in these things, to be able to grow in living on mission. But I want, you to, tell, I want to tell you this. If you want to be blessed in life, If you want to experience God's blessing in your life and feel the joy that he wants you to feel, you cannot avoid this calling. You cannot avoid living on mission and sharing the gospel. There are so many Christians that I see who, they just, they're joyless. They don't have joy. And I think for a lot of them, it's because they are not following God's call to try and reach the lost, to try and share the gospel. And I know right now, some of you even hear me saying this, and it sounds like a burden. It sounds like a chore. It's not something we want to do. Listen, God wants us participating in his mission and not on the sidelines. And he's called you to participate for your good. It's for your good. It's for your joy. God calls us to do this not so that we would just have to check the box and say, oh, man, I really suffered for Jesus. No, he wants you to know the joy of seeing you be faithful and seeing other people come to faith and being saved from hell through you. And I know, we live in a culture that's not where we're seeing tons of people make instant conversion decisions, right? A lot of times it's a process, and we don't get to see the end of that. But let me tell you, God wants you to know the joy of being able to see how you are a part of his work, 
Sometimes we'll see that now. Sometimes we won't see that until we are dead and with him. But he wants us to have the joy of being a part of this most important work in the world. You aren't the B team, right? Like, when you think about school, right? When I, when I was in school, I always remember how we picked teams, right? All the kids would line up. There'd be two captains. And you're just hoping you don't get picked last, right? None of us are God's last choice. We're all his first choice. God chose for you to be his partner in this mission. And he wants you to be a part of it so that you would have joy. Truly, that is what we are called to know and experience and do. So I want to encourage you to embrace this call to go live on mission. Really practically, what does that mean? It means when you go live your normal life, you don't have to do a whole lot that's different. Except you try to be intentional. So the places you go, when you go to Starbucks, when you go to work, try to learn the names of people that you don't know. Try to learn who they are and build relationships. Ask them questions about who they are. Notice the people around you. You may want to seek out new people too, but you don't have to. If your struggle is busyness, just try and get to know the people that you see in everyday life. Ask them questions. And I'd encourage you, keep a note in your phone, note card if you're old school, whatever you want to do. But make it your goal to try and learn the names of one or two people every day. You're around enough people, you can do that, most of you. And when you know them, make it your goal to learn one or two new things about that person when you see them. Just have normal conversations. Be intentional. That's what it means to live like a missionary. So we need to embrace this call. We need to live on mission. And we need to share the gospel with people when we get opportunity with confidence. With confidence. Because Jesus has all authority. Because Jesus is expecting us to share. And we are expecting him to work through us when we do. And we also know the truth is not everybody's going to believe. Right? Some people are going to be hostile. Some people are going to respond with opposition to us. We need to expect that. We need to expect some of the people we share with are going to be neutral. They're really not going to be interested or care. And we need to expect that some will believe. Some will believe. And when a person comes to believe, then we move to step two in making a disciple. That's baptism. Right? We baptize people. That's the second way we see that we make disciples in this passage. Baptism is the outward symbol of an inward reality. Baptism is the outward symbol that expresses what's happened in our hearts when we've come to believe the gospel. Baptism is where a person is immersed, they're put underwater, and that's a symbol of dying to your old way of life, of being buried. And when you rise from that water, it's a symbol of rising from the grave to new spiritual life where you live for Jesus and not for you. That's what baptism is all about. It's a symbol of resurrection. So if you're here today and you've come to believe the gospel, you call yourself a Christian, I would just encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, you need to. And if you have, know that this is what baptism is about and be able to explain it. Because I don't know why, but man, there are so many people who are confused about baptism, aren't there? I mean, I, I'm, that's one of the things that surprised me as a pastor is how much baptism is a point of confusion for people. I guess it shouldn't surprise me. You know, I was confused about it when I became a Christian too. But the truth is, you probably got people around you who you're going to talk to about Jesus, and they are not going to get baptism. So I'd encourage you, just memorize a little spiel on it so you can explain it. Because we're also supposed to teach people to obey all of God's commands, right? That is the third part of making disciple, 
And baptism is one that people get hung up on. That's a command a lot of people don't want to obey. But we're commanded to teach people to obey all of God's commands. That's what disciples are to do. Now, we need to notice here, right? It doesn't say just learn all of Jesus' commands. It's not about learning facts and information. What does he say? He says learn to obey. We're to learn to obey and to observe what's commanded. Not just know it as an intellectual fact. We don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word, right? Amen? So this work of learning to obey all of God's commands, listen, that extends to every single thing you do in life. So this is a massive, massive calling. If you take this seriously, you know this is not an easy thing to do. Trying to learn and obey God's commands in every part of your life is a lifelong challenge. It is a lifelong pursuit. It is not something we ever arrive at or accomplish until we are in a box. It's difficult because it includes everything you do in your life. And it's not just external behaviors, right? It's your thinking. It's your feeling. It involves your heart. So if we're going to live in obedience to all of God's commands and pursue holiness in every part of who we are, we need to understand that that is what God wants from us, but that is not something that happens like an Instapot, right? It's not something that happens quickly. This is not a microwave process. This is something that's going to take your entire life. It never finishes. And so let me just encourage you here. That means you should still be struggling with sin. If we don't instantly overcome all of it, that means that the normal Christian life is you struggling with sin and you struggling to grow in obedience. So if that's you, don't feel discouraged and don't fall prey to Satan's attacks because what Satan wants you to do is focus on you, to look at you and your life and your actions and to take your eyes off of Jesus. When we fail and when we struggle with sin, we're not to look at ourselves, we're to look at Jesus. Look at his greatness. Look at his glory and be transformed as we do that. When we look at Jesus, when we are, have a fresh failure on our hands, man, that makes us love Jesus so much more because his grace has become deeper. Right? I understand more of God's grace now as a man who's followed Jesus for 15 years and has failed Jesus every day for 15 years than I ever could have understood on day one or week one of being a Christian. So look to Jesus and don't let Satan beat you up with guilt and shame. What Jesus wants is for us to confess our sins, repent of it, trust in him, and move on. To keep trying to do good works and to keep worshiping him. Don't focus on your failures. God wants us to make disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching people God's commands and to obey them. And that means there's two aspects to discipleship, right? You are to be a disciple and you are to make disciples. There's a duality to that. We're to be disciples who make disciples. That means you need to hear the gospel, you need to believe it, you need to be baptized, and you need to learn to obey. That means you go, and you tell others the gospel, and you help them to learn what it is to obey Jesus after they are baptized. That's the mission that God gives to us and to the church. It's a mission he's given to all of us, not just paid pastors, not just paid missionaries, not just paid ministers, but to you, to every Christian. That is our mission. It doesn't matter if you're 7, 17, or 77, or 102, like one of my church members. We are all called to be on this mission. 
So let's just be real. Are you doing that? Let's be real. Like, is that how you're living your life? Is that what you're devoted to? It's so easy in our culture to just make Christianity into that's what we do on Sundays. Or that's what I do when I go to Bible study or community group or some religious activities, whatever it is. Is that how you're trying to live when no one's watching? Is it how you're trying to live in your nine to five at work? When you got your free time and you're living in your house in your neighborhood? Are we trying to do this? Are we seeking opportunities to do this even more? To live on this mission? I think some of you may hear me talking about all this and you may feel encouraged because, hey, you're, you're trying to do this well. You're trying to do this. is what you're focused on. If that's you, be encouraged, man. God is happy with that. He is pleased with you. And if you feel discouraged right now because either you're not trying to do that or you just feel inadequate and unable to make disciples, which is a common thing for us to feel, you need to understand the truth. The truth is that you aren't adequate to make disciples in yourself. It's never been about you. Right? The Holy Spirit within you is what enables you and empowers you to make disciples. That's where the power comes from, not from you, not from me. The Holy Spirit working through us and through our words and through our efforts is what will enable us to see disciples be made. You also need to grow in your knowledge and training probably if you feel discouraged, right? Like Ephesians 4 says that the job of pastors is to train people to do the work of ministry. What's the implication? You shouldn't know how to do the work of ministry. You shouldn't know how to make disciples naturally, right? That's why DJ has a job. That's why David has a job. So if you feel inadequate, great. Welcome to the club. Go talk to them about it. Let them help you to grow. Talk to your community groups about that. Let others help you to grow in that. That's a normal, totally good place to be. And we've all got areas to grow. And one thing I do want to say, too, is that some of us get discouraged because we have a wrong idea of what it is to make disciples, especially in seminary towns, right? We can think that making disciples means that we need to teach classes and learn to read Greek and all become seminary profs. There's nothing wrong with that. God bless Alex. God bless everybody who wants to be a seminary prof, right? But that, that's not... It. That's not what it means to make disciples. That's part of it for some people. But being a disciple maker just means that you're helping people to love Jesus and follow him more. You're helping them to grow in some way in following Jesus. It's not a formal event that happens in a classroom. It's just life on life. It happens in living rooms and coffee shops and in seminary classrooms. So that means you're a follow, if you're a follower, you are qualified to make disciples. You are. Now, one example of this that, that I always love to talk about was from uh, Gateway, the church we were at in Cleveland that was a church plant. And there was a woman there whose name was Duana. Duana was a brand new convert when we got there. And uh, she often felt kind of embarrassed and was kind of sheepish and didn't want to talk a whole lot uh, because she felt like she didn't know anything. And she was brand new. She didn't know a lot of things. There was a lot that she had to learn. But man, she discipled me. I would tell her this, right? Dwana never sat down and taught me the Bible. She never taught me theology. But she helped me to grow in obedience to Jesus' commands. Because Dwana tried to live her life as a billboard for Jesus. And when Dwana would just go live normal life, when she would go to the grocery store, she would be looking for opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. She'd talk to the 
the checkout lady and give her a hug and make everybody behind her mad because she was trying to tell them about Jesus in, in a loving way when they wanted to hear it, when they were ready. She wasn't Bible thumping anybody. She was just a great billboard for Jesus. Friends, that's what making disciples is. You may be the person who knows the least in the room, but you may be one of the most effective disciple makers. So don't complicate the simple. Discipleship is helping people to love, know, and follow Jesus. And it's just that. It's a massive task, right? I know as I'm talking about this and we're talking about making disciples for the glory of God, man, this is an all-of-life task that we will never accomplish until we are with Jesus. Making disciples of all people on earth, it's not simple. It is an overwhelming task. It is a mission, a commission that we never finish. And Jesus knows that. And as we pursue this mission, he wants us to feel encouraged. As we go about living out the Great Commission, he wants us encouraged. And so he reveals who he is and his authority as king. He tells us this command. And then, how does he end this passage? He gives us encouragement. Right? He wants us to be encouraged. And so that's where we focus here on point three. Point three, the encouragement of Jesus. Jesus assures that we will succeed in this mission because he will always be with his followers. That's why we never want to leave out verse 20. We always want to read that and think about that when we talk about the Great Commission. Because if we try to do a command without this assurance, man, you are going to feel like a failure and it's going to be a crushing burden on your soul. But verse 20 says... Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's true for you and me, and it's true for every church member and every church until he comes back. Friends, we should feel encouraged as we go about this massive endeavor of making disciples because Jesus will always be with us. He is always with you. He will be with you in every gospel conversation that you have. He will be with you in every conversation you have and every effort you make to try and help somebody else grow in their faith. And this is why we have nothing to fear. This is why we can have joy and know nothing stands against us. Nothing can keep us from succeeding. And it's not really on us at all. It's not on our shoulders. We don't have to worry about results. We just have to worry about being faithful. Because Jesus is the one who is with us. The Holy Spirit is the one who is in us. He enables us. He empowers us. He is with us. And he is the one who brings about fruit. That's why you and I, we can pursue this mission with confidence, with joy, and with passion. And not get discouraged. Jesus has assured us he will be victorious. He always knows what's going on. He's always right there with you. So we can go and make disciples confidently. We can go about this work and not feel this crushing weight or burden or guilt or whatever it is that Satan wants to use to make us feel like we're not good enough and we're not going to be able to do it. Pursuing this mission should bring us joy because what it means is God is with us and plans to use us to bring people from death to life. And so I know it's hard sometimes. I've, I'm right there with you. I feel the difficulties and the challenge. 
But if we devote ourselves to this and we give up living the way we want to live, the life of ease, of comfort, of preference, and man, we are going to see amazing things happen because God is with us. It's costly, but it's awesome. It's a lot like being a dad, right? I knew when we got pregnant with Davis that my life was going to completely change and that my life was no longer about me and what I wanted. My money, my time, my energy and sleep, everything else in life wasn't going to be about me. And now it's devoted to my son, right? Now a lot of my life, my time, my energy is devoted to him and his good. And it's true, right? Being a dad is costly. It's cost me a lot of things. But it's all worth it. It's amazing. It's brought me greater joy by doing that than anything I had that I had to give up. I'm happy to pay the cost. He's worth it. And pursuing God's mission of making disciples, it'll be costly, but man, it's worth it. It'll give you a greater joy. Like, you know, here's the deal. My little guy has peed and pooped on me so many times, I can't count. That's not pleasant. But it's worth it, because he's awesome, and I love him. Get ready, you uh, dads to be in the future. But that's how it is with making disciples, too. Yeah, it's messy, and it's hard. It's unpleasant sometimes. Man, the joy of being able to see people grow into maturity of Christ and see people go from death to life, man, that's worth it. And you're going to feel that joy, too. So some of you, I want to encourage you, devote yourself to seeking after this mission. Really, when you assess your life, rearrange what you need to to devote yourself to this. Some of you, you're trying hard. You are devoted to this. And you may feel like you don't see any kind of fruit whatsoever. So let's just be real for a minute. For many of you, I, I know, like it's been a rough season at church. For some of you, that season's been like five years or more. For some of us who are at Crossing, like it, it's been a long road with a lot of bumps. And I know many of you are feeling pain and difficulty right now because church planning is not easy. I know. I mean, you guys are in this building, and you should thank God for it. Like when we were in Gateway in Cleveland, we, there were a lot of Sundays for a while when we had like 15 to 20 people, and we were in an auditorium that sat 600. And you want to talk about feeling insignificant and puny. Yeah, I mean, it was a great space. We're thankful for it, but that was rough. Right? Church planning is hard. It's hard. And I know, I mean, there's, there's times where you go through it and you wonder, like, are we ever going to grow? Are we going to make it? There's times where you sit back and you wonder, are we ever going to see lost people come to faith? Is what we're doing significant? Does it even matter? Look, I know how that feels. I know how that feels. I've been in church plants like that. I also know some of you are feeling the pain from seeing some people leave and go to other churches. And that hurts. The struggle is real. The pain's real. It's also completely normal. I just want to assure you that, like, that's part of what happens when you church plant. Especially early on, like you guys are, you see people come and go a lot. And that's hard. It hurts. Church planning is difficult. It's difficult on your pastors. It's difficult on you as members. But that's why you need this passage. That's why you need to camp out in this 
regularly and remind yourself of it. Because in the pain of church planning and in looking at the fruit and wondering and asking all those questions and having doubts and being a human who wonders like, should we just go somewhere else or should we keep fighting? Should we keep doing this ministry or should we? You're going to ask questions like that over time. That's normal. But this is what you need to remember. This thing is not about you. This church is not in your hands. Jesus is the one who has all authority over you and over this church. He owns it, not you. It's his baby, not yours. He's got authority over this church, over Crestwood, over Louisville, over every person who lives in this community, who lives in your neighborhood, who you go to work with, and over everybody who's right in, in sight, right? And his authority means that his plan is going to be accomplished. Now, we don't know what that is. We don't need to know what that is. We just need to be faithful. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know he has all authority. What he wants to have happen in this church will happen. We need to be responsible. We need to try and act and do everything we can to bring him glory, and we leave the rest to him. And that's the struggle of every church plant and every church planner. I know what it's like. But, friends, that is freeing. Because it's not on you. It's not on your shoulders. You just have to be faithful. Just do what God has called you to do. Give yourself to this mission and leave the rest to him. He's given you this mission and he's given you this encouragement and guarantee he is always with you. So friend, if you're sharing the gospel with people and you don't see any fruit, that's totally okay. Because he is with you and he has a all authority. He is going to do what he wants to do in the lives of every person that you seek to minister to, whether that's sharing the gospel or helping them to grow. So be encouraged and be comforted. Because the truth is that you, you and I know this, we have no idea what God is doing almost all the time, right? We don't get to see most of the fruit. Occasionally we get to. So yesterday I'm at Todd's, right? And, uh, I'm, we're sitting there and we're trying to calm Davis down and so we're letting him watch this singing show and I, I check my phone for a minute because it beeps and I get this Facebook message and I look at it. So like when Miriam was sick, I felt like oh, I don't get to do any ministry right now. I felt stuck and like I, I couldn't do what I wanted to do, which is be a pastor, right? So one of the things that we did when Miriam was sick with autoimmune liver disease at Crossing, one of the things I started to do was write this um, booklet called uh, A Guide to Counseling People with Chronic Illness. Because there was nothing out there about that, nothing written like that. And I was like, well, I might as well just try. And I never went through the trouble of getting it published, but it got posted on a, a couple biblical counseling websites. And, you know, for the most part, I felt like, eh, that was a nice thing to do, but it really wasn't all that effective. So yesterday I'm at Todd's, and I get this message from this woman who's in Brazil who said that she read it and she translated it into Portuguese and wants to give it away and post it to all these people because there's a ton of people who need, they're dealing with this issue, right? That's one example where I finally got to see, like, what God is doing. How many times do we not see what God's doing? And do we doubt and we feel despair because we're trying to know something that's not ours to know yet? When you're with the Lord, you'll get to see everybody who comes to faith through your work, through your influence. You'll get to know it all. But for now, we don't. 
now we live by faith. And we need to trust God's working. We need to trust he's doing things in Brazil that we don't even know about. Well, that's true in your life too. You don't know what's going to happen in the life of that person when you share the gospel with them. You don't know. You may not get to. But we can trust that our God is faithful. We can trust that our God is loving. He is good. He is sovereign. And this is his mission. It's not ours. It's his mission that he gives to us. We just get to partner with him in it. God is on a rescue mission to save this world, and he's working. And he's going to be glorified. He's going to get what he wants. So in this church plant and all the other churches you'll ever be in before you die, every day of your life, devote yourself to this, knowing that God will do what he wants to do. And we can trust him. Let's pray.